Are you at a career crossroads and thinking about what's next for you? For career change tips, stories and resources, sign up to our newsletter at whatshedidnext.com.au. I kind of had to start from scratch again. So I almost had to just swallow my pride and go, okay, look, you know what, if that's what it takes, I'll take an entry level. I was so determined to get into the not-for-profit sector that I went, whatever it takes, I'll just get in and prove my worth and build up my skills. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and this is a podcast where I talk to women about their inspiring career changes. switch from corporates to not-for-profits, it's becoming more common. And for my guest today, she's relished the chance to use her marketing skills for good. Jan Webster worked in the IT industry for 30 years, initially spooking software for some big tech firms until her son Liam started school. Needing more flexibility in her work, Jen shifted to a part-time role, running her organisation's corporate social responsibility program, and this opened her up to the world of charities. It was a role she loved for many years, until suddenly she was faced with redundancy. A daunting prospect in her early 50s, but also paving the way to make a career change and go and work for a not-for-profit. Jen soon discovered that was easier said than done, but her determination did pay off and she's gone on to work in what she describes as the gritty end of the charity sector, in areas like HIV, homelessness and drug and alcohol addiction. Now the marketing manager at Odyssey House, New South Wales, Jen has some great insights to share around some of the barriers she faced in making her career change and the highs and lows of working for different charities. So please welcome from Sydney, Jen Webster. So you actually worked in the IT industry for 30 years before making your career change, which is quite the stint. So can you tell us a bit about how you got your start in the industry and what drew you to working in IT? So, look, I had no idea what I wanted to do, kind of left school and landed a job in admin as a legal secretary, funnily enough. Oh, right. And of a series of events, I ended up, I worked for a small organisation who introduced a computer. Now, this was a while ago, (laughs) long before computers were in common use. And my initial reaction was, well, I'm not going to touch that. But my curiosity took over and I thought, oh, this is quite interesting. And I loaded the payroll and I loaded the accounts and I I started fiddling with it. And I don't even think we had email then, but I really got this bug. And I went, okay, that's it. I need to work in IT. And gradually I did. I taught people how to do word processing and then became like a consultant. And I loved it. I had this job where I was traveling over parts of Australia I'd never seen before. And just... I think it was just that it was so exciting and we felt like we were at the forefront of this industry that was booming. Then you did have a bit of a career transition while you were still in IT. You ended up moving into more of a corporate social responsibility role. Um, So what was happening in your life at that time and how did that come about? So I went to work for a very large American software vendor and had probably nearly 10 years there, but then I had my first child. And I was very spoiled. I had work-based childcare. And so that was all, you know, while I had paternity leave and then came back and, and he would come to work with me and go to the childcare downstairs. 
when my son Liam started school, I just thought, how do you fit a school day into a work day? Like it's not, it doesn't work. And I look, it lasted a term and then I just said to my husband, I can't do this. I want to be at school. I want to do reading. I want to be involved in his life. And I just can't work at this pace and do that. So I went to my work and said, right, can I work part-time? Can I job share? Can I do anything? Can I remote work? And they were fairly inflexible. So I said, okay, that's it. I think I'll have to leave. And they went, oh, hang on a minute. You've been here a while. So they said, look, human resources have got this community thing. They don't know what to do with it. Flicking it over to us in marketing. Could you take that on and run it a couple of days a week? Mm. And so that's what I did. I was handed this project to sort of build up um, and manage and I just went, oh, this is the dream job, spending corporate money on good causes. And I think I was also probably getting a bit tired of, you know, there's only so much software you can spruik until you go, you know what, we're not curing cancer, we're not doing a whole lot of good for the world. So what were you doing day to day in the new role? So you, you started working with different charities? Yeah, so it was about identifying. So we had a framework that we would give money to, and that framework, for example, was we would support children with their education um, and if we could tie in a technology bent, all the better. And so it meant kind of finding charities that aligned to that, but also bringing the organisation on board to say, right, what, what are people passionate about? What awareness day should we celebrate as an organisation? What's important to us organisationally? Um, and what's, you know, often a lot of those were driven by individuals. And I remember a couple of quite vivid conversations where someone said to me, we need to support Stress Down Day. And it you know, had a lot of personal meaning to them and they shared this story and I went, and it was the first time I think I went, there's so much more going on that I, in a workplace that I really have no idea about. Mm. Another lovely example was our tech services manager came to me and, and shared this story that one of their team had a child who was born with a chromosomal disability and they didn't have the money to get this purpose-built wheelchair for the child. It was actually like a walking frame. And what the tech services team said is if we raise half, will the company put in half? That was, that story still gives me goosebumps today because it was the, the, the colleague who then received this frame for their child and sent a video of the child taking their very first steps because of this frame. Oh, wow. We all just went, oh that's the difference we can make. Yeah. Uh, and so you'd started to get a bit of a sense that that world of not-for-profits could hold some interest for you. But what was the turning point that finally prompted you to make a move across to that sector? So that decision was made for me and I, I'm a big believer in that things happen for a reason. So my CSR role was made redundant. We were so successful in putting up the CSR program, they decided it could be consolidated and China needed the budget that year. And I said, okay, this is my list. This is my time to go and now find my place in the not-for-profit sector. But I think you'd been at that company for, was it 20 years? Nearly 20 years. So I imagine that experience of redundancy could have been quite tough. I mean, how did it unfold for you? Look, it was, I, I struggled with it. I struggled with it because of exactly that, that I'd been there so long. I was literally part of the furniture. I knew ins and outs. And that, you know, we talked earlier about change. And while I embrace change, actually facing change is so much harder, I realised. And, you know, it was the, my redundancy was not handled well. And so there was a great lesson in 
that in terms of how organisations can manage that well or not so well. But I, I just, you know, I, I thought, okay, this is it. I'll just go out and find a job. I'll just pick up another, either a CSR job or I'll go and work in charity. And to my surprise, it wasn't that easy. My skills were so out of date. I didn't know how to interview. My CV was probably too verbose. That was the steep learning curve was just learning how it had changed so dramatically in almost 20 years mm. and just how interviewing had become very much this, I don't call it a game, that's not fun, but it, it's a it's a play act, you know, and it's about yes. selling yourself. And if you just think, well, of course I'm competent, look at me, you know, I've filled these yes. roles, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You actually have to sell yourself. You do. I mean, how did you feel putting yourself out there again for those job interviews I think you were in your early 50s at this point as we said you'd been in your last role for so long were you going through recruiters were you just literally going through the job ads like what were some of the first steps you took all of the above and I kept a spreadsheet on all of the jobs that I went for I just I had rejection after rejection and I couldn't work out why because the other frustrating thing in job search is that usually people don't give you feedback Mm. And that's so hard to improve on when people don't tell you where you trip up. And what was a bit confronting was that I kind of had to start from scratch again. So I almost had to just swallow my pride and go, okay, look, you know what, if that's what it takes, I'll take an entry level. I was so determined to get into the not-for-profit sector that I went, whatever it takes, I'll just get in and prove my worth and build up my skills. Mm. I found it was quite insular as a sector. Well, a lot of recruiters would say, oh, but you don't have not-for-profit experience, to which I'd say, well, how do I get that experience if <laughs> no one hires me? So, you know, I just I basically just kept going to anyone saying, what do I need to do? So mm-hmm. I'd go to recruiters and say, teach me what I need to do. Um, and that experience was with mixed results where some were great and would give you time. I met some outstanding people that would literally – run mock interviews with me and then and give me feedback. Um, yeah, and there are a couple of people that I'm eternally indebted to for just giving me some hard truths around, mm. you know, the way you answer that is, is, does not come across. You know, I know I can see what you're capable of, but you're not telling me that. Yeah. Um, so you picked up a few techniques that really then helped me kind of change that. I guess despite that bumpy start, you did (laughs) succeed in landing a role and you've gone on to work for some pretty interesting charities over the past few years. So can you tell us a bit about the roles that you've taken on and I guess what you're doing now? So I landed a role in initially an HIV charity, knew nothing about HIV, but discovered my niche in the sort of the gritty end, what I call gritty, so supporting the the most marginalised people. And so I loved that experience working in that space, then decided to follow my interest in homelessness and went to work for um, an organisation that ran a community kitchen. And now I've kind of looped around and worked for an organisation that supports people with alcohol and other drug dependencies. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm actually doing now, so I've gone, done a few things um, within the not-for-profit sector and and small organisations, you wear many hats. So you will be (laughs) the marketing person, the comms person, you'll be the social media, you'll be the fundraiser, you'll be the PR, it's everything. Yeah. 
And so I've kind of come back around where now I have a marketing title, but that involves marketing, comms, PR, social media events, and so on. So, right. And I know you've talked about this being heart work for you. So are we able to talk specifically about Odyssey House where you mm-hmm. are now? I mean, I'd love to hear a bit more about what's really drawn you to the work they're doing. Odyssey House supports people through drug and alcohol addiction, and that could be either through community programs, um, kind of like peer-run groups or mental health recovery, because those two are, are deeply interwoven, mental health issues and, and dependencies, but also residential programs, so people that need to just you know, have really deep support to get through the issues that they're facing, the harms. And what I love about Odyssey is that there, there are so many what they call graduates of the program that work for Odyssey, so people right. that themselves have lived experience. And I think what I have learned through and and my HIV charity was very much like that. Like there's a great expression of nothing about us without us. And that's you can't talk about these issues unless you incorporate the voice of people with lived experience. Mm-hmm. And so I'm incredibly fortunate that I work with um, people who can steer me and say, actually, when you talk about this, you need to talk about it that way or just help create a more sensitive narrative around because there's so much stigma both around HIV, homelessness and drug and alcohol that, you know, that's the biggest part of it is busting that stigma. Mm. And that sort of then taps into the, you know, the latent advocate in me that likes to stand up for the underdog, I guess, and just fight for fairness and justice. And had you done any sort of volunteering before or, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, you said, you know, you come from a relatively privileged background. So I'm wondering what drew you to that grittier side and how you felt really comfortable, you know, engaging with people in that space of the, you know, if you've been working in the tech industry and not really encountering people on the street in your day to day. How did you, yeah, I guess, get really comfortable with that and, and learn the skills of, of dealing with people from different walks of life? So I think, I mean, it's about p- person-centred I mean, in corporate, they call it human-centric, um, human-centered design, but it's, it's person-centered work. So you basically treat people as a human being. But my sort of talk into that interest in homelessness, I started commuting to the city for the first time in my life. You know, I used to live in a bubble and I would drive to a bubble and, and wouldn't ever be exposed to any of the, the you know, issues of society. So when I started commuting to the city for um, a role in Surrey Hills, I would get off the bus and I'd see people sitting along the city and I'd think, why are they there? Like in a country as wealthy as ours, why do we have people on the street? And why aren't they being looked after? So I would, and then I'd meet and chat to big issue sellers and I'd, I'd stop and chat to people. Initially it was this, I'd walk past and say hello and I wasn't sure how to start that conversation. So I'd just say hello and then over time I'd say, look, can I get you a coffee? And I'd buy them coffee and then I'd just stop and, and introduce myself and say, how's your day going? Is there anything you need? And invariably a lot of people would then share their story. And I thought, you know, I sort of looked at that um, inequality and the, the, the structural inequality of it this is so wrong. Mm. Then someone said to me, all these people you meet, you need to tell their stories. 
And so I, that's I started sharing a story from the people I met who I found incredibly inspiring. I still find incredibly inspiring. And have you ended up doing any retraining along the way? I mean, when you started applying for jobs, it sounds like you jumped straight in. I don't think you studied at that point, but have you since taken on additional learning? I did. So when I worked for the HIV charity, I sat right next to our social workers and, and case managers and case workers. And I was so inspired by them that I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. So I went back and retrained in community services. And I think at any level that still, that training helped to cement what we do, things like referrals within a community service program, building stronger networks, looking after clients, yeah, and then different, there were different um, electives to do, whether that was in aged care or alcohol and other drug, um, homelessness, youth, mental health, so forth. So that training, but I came out of that training and went, I, I was qualified to be a social worker, but I wasn't quite brave enough to do that. So I thought, okay, I'll fall back on my skills, go and work in the homelessness space and, um, and do that. And luckily I was really fortunate that I, in my, the homelessness role, I, the organization I worked in, I got to do frontline and back office. And so when the frontline got a bit too hard, (laughs) I could scurry back to the office and, um, and hide away. But I got to chat to all of the patrons who would hang out at, at the community cafe. And that, that was very enlightening. Because all of the things you think about homelessness, you have all those myths busted. And so in terms of the transferable skills that you brought from your old career to your new career, I mean, obviously there's a marketing thread that's run through all of it, but what would you say are some of the yeah, other skills, perhaps surprising skills that you've, you've taken on in the new career that you'd gained from your last 30 years? Look, I think adaptability. So... A manager once said to me, you are incredibly resourceful. And I took that as the highest compliment because it was like, I won't, I'm a bit of a terrier. So if someone says we can't do that, it's like, I'll find a way. Um, or that can't be done. I'm like, it can be done. Mm. It just, you know, we need to think laterally and also being flexible. Flexibility is a huge one because there's absolutely that's not my job because everything's your job in a small organization. If the door goes and someone's there and they need help and you're the only one there, you go. Yeah. But yeah, I guess a lot of people can look at the charity sector with rose colored glasses, I would say. And, you know, yes, it does offer the chance to do meaningful work. Uh, but it can also be a bit of a culture shock, I think, coming from corporates and, you know, and, and equally you can still encounter things like, you know, office cultures that may not be a great fit, not so great managers, etc. I mean, what would you say are some of the big differences you, you noticed or had to adjust to? I think just the inefficiency, like the lack of using tech, you know, to increase productivity in a workplace was a bit like, what do you mean your systems are that old? Um, you know, and often they're running on the smell of an oily rag, so... Yeah, I think just the fact that they were doing things what seemed like the hardest possible way. And, and it looked, and I've worked for a few now and now I'm kind of in one that's quite structured. So the processes really vary and some I've come from what felt a bit like the Wild West where no process, <laughs> no, no version control, no, no structure to now having quite firm process within a long-standing organisation that 
works with incredibly vulnerable people and they have to have all these tight controls. But I think that's an interesting thing for people to consider as well is that there is, I mean, there are thousands of not-for-profits in this country <laughs> of varying uh, sizes and shapes and structures. And yeah, as you said, you were drawn to the, the grittier end, which is possibly smaller organisations and perhaps less funding. But, you know, I've tended to work for a couple of the bigger organisations and, you know, I found them to be very efficient. So, you know, the experiences, I think, again, similarly to applying for any job, I think you do still need to look for, yeah, the the, the fit as well as and your interests as well as sort of um, just, you know, rather than just going, I just want a charity job. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that can mean many different things. I'd say you really need to align it to your values. So, and that's that's what I've learned. I think so, yeah. Um, and I'd say another big consideration for people in making a move to the not-for-profit sector is the money side of things. Like genu- generally you are earning less than a corporate role. I mean, was that something you really had to think about or how did you manage that? I mean, again, that was kind of like you pay what? When I first started having interviews, it was like, okay, reset expectations. And, look, I'm, I'm very privileged. I um, am part of a couple and so we could afford to do that. But I think for a lot of people – you know, it, it's hard. Mm. And, you know, I've worked with social workers that earn, that do such amazing work and should be paid far more than my old corporate counterparts. And, you know, just they, they're so passionate about what they do that that's just, they accept that that's the status quo. Mm. Um, a bit like, you know, the whole conversation about nurses and teachers and, you know, they're so undervalued. And I think social workers are too. But, yeah, so you just adjust. You need. You know, I joke that you'd work twice as hard and earn half the money. Yes, it can be that way for sure. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's about five years now since you made the move to the not-for-profit sector. What would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned on your career change journey? Um, probably resilience. You talked before about, you know, that I was a bit shocked that, again, I thought not-for-profit was la-la land and everyone was <laughs> lovely and nice and um my first very short foray into the not-for-profit was a dream job with a nightmare manager <laughs> and I just I looked at that and just thought I'm too old for this nonsense like I'm just I'm not putting up with that I wasn't mm. sorry not even the too old but it was like I'm I'm too I'm not putting up with this nonsense at this point in my life and um yeah so took that battle on and that was uh that was so interesting so the probably the biggest thing is just being resilient like learning to deal with a whole lot of rejections and learning from that Mm. like how do I improve what is it that I'm not getting that has you know means that I'm I'm being knocked back from job after job Mm. what can I do differently and these days to me an interview is a conversation and I'm just my absolute natural self and it's like if you don't like that then I'm not for you Mm, it's quite freeing, I think, to reach that point. <laughs> and what would you say is the best part about your work life now? Um, look, I, you know, I feel like I get to feel like I've contributed to something. So there's a sense of meaning in what I do, and it's yeah, it's that the work that I do, while it it may still be vanilla marketing if you like but it's all contributing to a greater good sounds a bit highfalutin but 
it's contributing to something and to supporting people. And every now and again, that work gets validated with a conversation. Occasionally, calls will come through to me and it's people saying, look, I'm trying to get on to the intake line to book in. And then they'll tell me their story. And it's just, you know, I had this beautiful call just before Christmas of this woman that said, I need help. My kids have have told me I have an issue with alcohol and, and I'm, I'm a broken woman and I'm this age and okay, I, I concede that I need to get help and, and what can, you know, I'm just trying to get through. Mm. And I just went, that could be any of us. You know, really, it could be anyone I know. It could be me. It could, you know, it's just that whole you know, sliding doors moment where your lives have just moved differently or you've made different choices. So. Yeah. I think feeling like you're contributing to a, you know, a bigger goal or mission is um, is probably the, the best thing about my role. And I think for the first time in my career, I feel like I actually have some direction. So I took to, I did the community services training this year. I'm about to start a counselling course. Oh, great! And I can clearly see that that you know that is where my passion and probably my skills will lie. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've made some pretty brave leaps in your life and career. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? What stands out for me as a bravest moment is taking on an organisation that had an issue. So I, I referred briefly to my initial foray into not-for-profit and a nightmare manager. So that um, didn't end well and I and the organisation wouldn't back me when I tried to raise it as an internal issue and so I took them to fair work. Oh, right. So I, and I had so much conviction that that was the right thing to do and that's what I'd say. You know when in your gut you just go, this is the right thing to do and I'm not, not even talking about issues big issues like that but just you know if it's making a career choice or if it's the gut feel you get about an organization through an interview it's you know just having conviction that that something's right a bit like and when I made that choice to downsize when my son started school it was I was I knew it was the right thing to do and I just had to sell it on everyone else yes (laughs) (laughs) so you know I think as um women particularly maybe women of a mature age that we've been conditioned to not make others uncomfortable yeah and now these days i'm about if it makes you uncomfortable then i'm sorry but this we need to have this conversation Mm. and it's timely in terms of the outrage over grace tame not smiling oh my goodness don't even get me started on that (laughs) well good on you i think Mm. that is a really brave stand to have taken um, and speaking of Grace, I mean, I think a lot of us find inspiration from other women too. Who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? Um, look, she is inspiring. I had the absolute good fortune of being on a panel with her last year. Oh, right. And like, I mean, they picked these two high people and asked me and I'm like, what? Wow. <laughs> anyway, that was a yeah, highlight. Um, but I've, you know, high well-known people aside, I just feel so incredibly lucky to have worked alongside some amazing women and women who have supported me in my organisation. When I moved from Melbourne to Sydney, I had one, a cheerleader beside me, 
helping me negotiate my package to move because, again, I just kind of went, oh, I'll take the job, sure. And my friend Wendy said, no, this is what you're going to ask for. I'm like, oh, that's really smart because <laughs> yeah. I've never been about money. And she was like, no, this is what you need to negotiate. So, okay, good. So just people that um, yeah, have been there beside me and supported me and laughed with me and <laughs> propped me up and, yeah. And if you could recommend one thing to watch, read or listen to for any aspiring career changes out there, what would you recommend? Look, I think in terms of career change, just find what's for you. Just one thing I learned is if you're going for a job, research everything. I know people, we all know to do this, but research everything you can about the organisation to get a feel. Um, There's no sort of one book or thing that I've read, but for me it's mostly person-to-person interaction. So I've gone to people and said, how do I do this? So even when I wanted to move into a new sector within not-for-profit, I went to about four different people that I respected and said, how do I do this? Like, how do I get from here to there? What do you recommend? Um, yeah, so tapping into the resources around you and don't be afraid to ask people because yeah. I think it's quite it's quite an honour for people to come to you and say, could you help me make my next career move? Mm. Yeah, and I think sharing those, I mean, that's partly why I started this podcast because I think learning from the experiences of other women who might be in very different industries to you, but, you know, some of the the aspects of the stories we share are universal, like whether it's having to build up the courage to make the change or to, you know, overcome certain obstacles. I think, yeah, it's really useful for all of us to share what we've learned along the way. But the preface to that is, the suffix, is to back yourself which is really hard if you've gone through a stage where you've lost confidence. A bit like, you know, I had an interview for so long and I suddenly went, I have zero skills. I know I have all these things to offer, but why can't people see it? Mm. So, we, you know, it was a bit of a roller coaster of, of learning just how to rebuild those skills. But just know, you know, there's, there's many ways you can do that. Yeah. And lastly, if you could offer one tip to someone listening who's really feeling in need of a change, but maybe they don't know if they're making the right decision or, you know, not even sure what else is out there for them, what's what's your best tip for them? So I would make a mind map, you know, what's important to you and whether that's a mind map of like what does your, what does a good job look like to you, whether that's the community you work with, the, you know, the environment that you work in, but then there are other great tools that I found, things like a values assessment tool that you can do free online um, or a career profiler, which helps to sort of, you know, when I think about it now, I really should have gone into nursing. Oh, really? Something like, because I'm a natural people, I'm a, you know, I love people and I like to help. Mm. And if I feel like I've helped someone, then that's made my day. So recently um, I saw a thing there offering free scholarships to, for people to train as nurses and I was like, oh, I wonder if it's too late. <laughs> Never but, um, too late. <laughs> no, no, I'm thinking now, no, counselling. I'll do counselling. It's quicker. Um, but, yeah, just, you know, find the tools to help and, and get that sort of feedback. Have a sounding board. One thing, when I did that community services course, I met all these amazing Mature age women who had these great careers that wanted a change. They were looking for jobs with meaning. And one woman I remember had been a teacher for 30 plus years and she just didn't know how to start. Mm. 
And I thought, you know, I, at the time I was probably applying for jobs or I was, I, no, at the time I was in a job but thinking about how, all of the experiences I'd had in getting there. And I just thought there must be a way. I couldn't find anything that collated all those the tips and tricks. So I pulled together a Facebook page and I then said to her, this is for you. It's called Working Wisdom and it has things like a link to the free career profiler and a values assessment and just sharing parts of my journey. Like, you know, you have days where you just feel like the world is against you and that's okay. You know, you need to allow yourself those days rather than just going, oh, come on, chin up, get on with it. Because mm. it is a roller coaster, that whole applying for jobs and even working is a roller coaster. You have up days and, and down days and days where you think, yes, I've nailed this and other days where you feel like you have no idea. Yeah. Well, we'll link to that Facebook page you mentioned because it sounds like there'll be some really helpful resources there for people. But that is it. Thank you so much for your time today, Jen. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you, Jackie. That was Jen Webster, Marketing Manager at Odyssey House, New South Wales which you can find at odysseyhouse.com.au. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd love if you could share the link with a friend or leave us a kind review. And if you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn at What She Did Next Podcast or subscribe to our newsletter at whatshedidnext.com.au. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe, Our associate producer is Catherine Cavill and this podcast is made on Darawal country. Thanks for listening.